It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the Know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk. Today is Friday, April 5th, and I'm Natalia Castro from Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. So today we have a very exciting show. Uh, we will be diving into the 2020 census, and it is perfectly timed as this past Monday marked one year out uh, from Census Day. We are delighted to have three guests in studio with us to talk about this important issue. First, let me introduce you guys to Deborah or Deb Stempowski, my apologies, <laughs> Chief of the Decennial Census Management Division at the Census Bureau. Good morning, Deb, and thanks for being here. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Next, we have Mary Jo Huxema, Director of Government and Public Affairs at the Population Association of America. Mary Jo, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. And in just a few minutes, we will have joining us Beth Link, the Campaign Director for Census Counts at the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. She'll be in the studio in just a couple moments to talk to us some more. But before we talk census, I wanted to remind everyone that Fed Talk is brought to you by Long-Term Care Partners, LLC. Long-Term Care Partners administers the Office of Personnel Management-sponsored Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program. To learn more about LT, to learn more about them, visit ltcfeds.com today. Now, I'm so happy to have you guys in the studio. I'm really excited for this show because uh, I am a huge census nerd, as I have told you guys many times. And to start us off, why don't we just kind of go around? I'll let you guys describe your role in the census and what it takes to put the 2020 census together. Deb, why don't you start us off? Sure. Thanks. Uh, certainly, the Census Bureau's role is to conduct a complete and accurate 2020 census, but my role specifically as the chief of the Decennial Census Management Division is to run the centralized management office responsible for planning, implementation, overseeing operations, and then evaluating the 2020 census program. That includes budget, schedule, and scope, the triple constraint at both the program and the project levels. And I do that job. Fantastic partners within the Census Bureau help me be successful uh, to ensure we can deliver a quality census. And Deb, you've been working within the Census Bureau for quite some time now, right? I have. I've been at the Census Bureau for 28 years. I've worked in a number of the major program areas, including the economic statistics area of the Bureau. If people are familiar with business statistics, I've worked in the research and methodology area. Um, and previous to joining the 2020 census team, I was the chief of the American Community Survey Office. Wow. So we have a real expert in the room. And that continues, too, with Mary Jo. Why don't you describe to us a little bit about your role in the 2020 census? Sure. Thanks. I wear a couple of hats with respect to the 2020 census and census work in general. Um, I am director of government and public affairs for the Population Association of America, where I represent demographers, economists, sociologists, population scientists who really rely on census data to conduct their research and research training activities. But I'm also director or co-director of the Census Project, which is a coalition of hundreds of groups um, spanning a diverse number of stakeholders, business, labor, civil rights, housing, education, um, child advocates, all of whom have come together um, to advocate for full funding of the Census Bureau, the 2020 Census, and to support a mandatory fully funded American Community Survey. 
That's great. And Beth just joined us. Thank you so much for being here today. We really appreciate it. I know for everyone, this is a very busy time of year, so it's so great to have you in here. Beth, why don't you describe some of what you and the Leadership Conference do with Campaign Counts to make the census possible? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for having me here. Um, yes, my name is uh, Beth Link, and I uh, work at the Leadership Conference Education Fund. Uh, and at the Leadership Conference, um, my my role is um, serving as the Census Counts Campaign Director, and I have the privilege of working with um, our over 200 uh, member uh, coalition members and partners that we work with uh, in the civil and human rights, uh, civil rights and human rights community um, to ensure that there's a fair and accurate count. We come to this work and see the census as a civil rights issue. Um, it's uh, it only works if everyone participates and everyone shows up, uh, and we know that. Um, um, too often, uh, the communities that are considered harder to count, uh, communities of color, immigrant communities, uh, communities living in rural areas, indigenous communities, um, are the communities that uh, will be left behind in terms of political representation or in terms of uh, federal funding if they're, if they're not counted in the census. Um, so my role um, as the Census Counts Campaign Director is uh, working uh, with uh, our over uh, 15 partners who are serving as different um, census hubs within this effort. Um, so I have the privilege of working with organizations like Naleo, who is uh, Nuleo Education Fund, who's serving as the um, hub for resources for the Latino community, um, and organizations like Color of Change and uh, National Urban League, who work to provide resources um, to the black uh, the black community, um, and and organizations uh, like Faith and Public Life that are serving um, and providing resources for the faith community, um, and uh, and as well as our state partners um, across over 30 states right now. So um, certainly uh, a big effort engaging and mobilizing the nonprofit community um, and, uh, and and something that we're, we're very excited about and, and will be really critical in terms of census participation. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things uh, right before the show started that we were talking about is who helps make the census possible? And uh, Deb very well said, everyone does. <laughs> and I think that's really true. And if anyone else, I know you just touched a little bit on those partnerships that are necessary for making the census possible. If either Deb or Mary Jo can speak a little bit more to that and how the community as a whole really gets involved to make the census happen. Right. So... Uh, I'll just jump in. Certainly, partnership is key to our mission. Uh, Beth hit on a, a couple of points there, but our partners include organizations representing all levels. So at the national level, state level, local level, uh, tribal governments, community leaders, neighborhood associations, business groups. So the span of partners is very large, which is necessary because the census happens at the local level. No, we manage it at the national level. Um, and so their help with us um, conducting the accurate census is critical because another part of that partnership there is them encouraging folks to join the census workforce. Uh, we'll be hiring over 500,000 temporary workers in local communities uh, to conduct the census. And we need those trusted voices and we need our partners to help us recruit those trusted voices at the local level. Has that recruitment effort already started? Actually, it has. Oh, very interesting. Uh, I, yes, we've uh, had an online application up and available since this fall. To date, we've had over 300,000 applicants create an application and a profile in that tool, and over 240,000 of those have completed the assessment, and so we're well past our goal. Uh, even though we have a significant number of applicants in that pool, we're still going to work closely with our partners and through the communications contract uh, to continue to recruit as we um, progress in our building up that queue of available applicants to work on the census. Oh, yeah, it really is a group effort um, on the national, state, and local level. So I think that's really important to hit on. We are just going to run into our first break. Um, you're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 AM. We will continue our discussion with Deb, Mary Jo, and Beth about the 2020 census after a quick word from our sponsors. We are very excited to dive into this conversation some more. 
Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 AM. We are just diving into the ins and outs of the 2020 census. But I find in my conversations with people about the census, getting ready for the census, there's a lot of people who don't understand why we still have one. It seems like it should be obvious figuring out how many people are in the United States. And there are things like the American Community Survey. So the decennial census kind of plays a unique role in a lot of ways that I don't think people realize. And I was hoping we can just, uh, from all of your perspectives, talk about why the census is necessary and why it is an element of our Constitution that is still handed and done every 10 years. So um, if, Deb, you want to start, because I know you are the Census Bureau Happy to start there, and I think I'll start with uh, just the background, right? The purpose of the census is to conduct an enumeration of population and housing and disseminate the results to the president, to the states, and the American people, and that's mandated in Article One, Section 2 of the U.S. Constitution. And so that's, that's the purpose of it, but the census is used in a lot of ways. First and foremost, the census results determine how many seats each state gets in Congress. I think many people are familiar with that use, but also state and local officials will use the census to redraw uh, boundaries for congressional districts and state and legislative districts. Also, your response helps in other ways. The census results helps to determine more than $675 billion in federal funding and how that's spread out uh, and distributed and shared to states and communities each year. And that money, for example, can help pay for roads, schools, hospitals, emergency services, and so much more. So the census is used in a lot of ways. I think people, though, First and foremost, remember uh, the apportionment counts, which determine how many seats each state has in the House of Representatives. Oh, yes. That representation is always on people's minds. Mary Jo, I know you know a little bit more about kind of the funding element uh, with the census and where some of that money goes. Could you speak a little bit to that and how that works? Money for the Census Bureau or money, money that is used, that, that is allocated based allocated on based on the census? Yeah, I mean, it really just picking up where Deb left off, I'd say, you know, this money is used to, to fund a whole host of programs that support everything from hospitals to schools to roads. Um, one area that Deb didn't touch on that I, I think is important to also highlight is the fact that the data that are collected from the, the decennial census are used and relied upon quite heavily by the business sector, the mm-hmm. private sector, to make decisions about um, investments, um, planning, factory locations, workforce characteristics. These are data that they they, they can't simply replicate and um, really rely on to make key decisions that drive our economy. Yeah, it's definitely not just the government that's using this information. Exactly. Beth, particularly for those hard-to-count communities, why is it so important to have this census data and to have an accurate count reflecting where those people are? Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, uh, Deb and Mary Jo were completely right that, you know, really no matter what issue you care about, um, ultimately you care about census data and making sure that the data is accurate and and, and fair. Um, if you care about health care, you care about census data because that's uh, Medicaid dollars, that's um, resources for uh, community health centers in your community, um, if you care about um, the environment um, or, or environmental justice, um, many um, enforcement of environmental justice um, laws and, and work in states happens because and is based on census data. Um, if you care about labor and jobs in your community, many, like like Mary Jo said, many businesses um, determine and make some of those determinations based off of census data. And even some states um, use census data um, to 
dis- to distribute and and determine some of how their uh, state budgets are are set up and um, and it can be really hyper local and so that's one thing when we see communities that are missing um, in the census they are the ones that actually um, feel the impact of being missing um, and and then ultimately have find some of those resources missing in their community because it really um, that impact can be um, you know determined and and come down hyper local um, so if you know if it's your community that's that's not present in the census then ultimately it could be your community that misses out on those resources for for parks or for um, a new community health center or for a new um, a new job opportunity or, or business opening in your community so uh, you know we're really uh, we actually on Monday just had a big day of action where groups across the country were talking about the importance of the census um, and talking about you know why it's important that we stand up and be present and one of the the biggest things that people were talking about is you know it it, it matters um, for our community's bottom line um, if you know our community needs these resources and needs um, you know needs nice nice parks and needs um, money for infrastructure so that we can be, live um, healthy and safe and happy lives and so um, it, it really is um, you know a, a vote you know to to take um, a, a page from the the Census Bureau has their um, tagline, but it really is a, a vote for your future, right? It's um, you having an investment and in, in, uh, investing in, in the resources that are going to come back to your own community. Yeah, absolutely. And there is so much data that is being collected and that is used by so many different groups. So I think the natural next question is, how is this data gathered? And Deb, obviously, with that management background, you can speak a little bit to <laughs> how this whole census is done. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, I'd start out with reminding everyone. So we always say with the census, we want to count everyone once and only once and in the right place. So at its simplest in one sentence, that's what the decennial census is all about. But we start with building our address list, and that includes every address in the nation uh, and forms the basis of the census. So when you think about in the right place, we need the addresses to do the right place part of that uh, mission. But then we're going to motivate people to respond starting next year. And that's where our partners come in again, as we've already talked about. Um, They're very important. They let people know what the census means to them. And it sounds like my two uh, members here with me on the panel have already started doing that to help us. Because next year we'll be doing self-response. That'll start in March, right? And we'll provide the three modes, the internet, phone and paper response and in multiple languages. So we'll be encouraging people to self-respond. That's the cheapest way for us to get a response in from folks. Also, as we've done in prior censuses, we'll make sure we enumerate people living or staying in non-traditional housing, which we call group quarters. Um, You can think about hospitals maybe for that. And we also will provide an opportunity to uh, enumerate folks experiencing homelessness like we did in the 2010 census. That being said, when we get folks who don't respond, uh, I think people recall the door knocking, right? A lot of people are familiar with the census, and that's what they think about. So for folks who don't respond, a census worker will knock on their door. Again, here our partners help with uh, this phase of it by encouraging people to cooperate us when we reach out. And the people who are, are doing that door knocking should be from the local community again, that we mentioned before. And then after we do all of that very, very quickly, um, we're going to tabulate and release the results. First to the president, the apportionment counts are delivered in December of 2020, and then to the rest of the country. Wow. So the whole process, um, obviously, you guys spend years getting ready for Mm -hmm. that count. And then once the count happens, Within a year, you have everything done and brought mm-hmm. back to the president, which is really just an overall impressive effort. Uh, with so much to do, what kind of efforts have already been underway? Have you started working on and what's left to do? So we have already been mentioning a few of the things that are underway uh, this morning. We certainly had our awareness event on Monday with one year out um, to Uh, get the excitement and the exposure up for the census. There we were joined by some of our national partners uh, to increase the awareness and get the nation in the mode to think about the importance of the 2020 census. I talked a little bit about our recruitment efforts to date. 
already previously with over 240,000 having completed our online assessment um, and being ready for selection in, uh, into census work. Um, but some other things I'd like to point out. First, we continue to make progress on opening um, our early area census offices. They support early operations. I mentioned uh, updating the address list for the country. That's the early operation that'll been, begin this summer. Uh, we have 38 out of our 39, I'll call them open and ready for business already, and the remaining one will be open within a matter of days. And then the full complement of our local census offices, which is 248, um, they'll support our peak operations Next year, we'll begin opening in June of this year, and our goal is to have them all open by the end of September. So if you want to think about infrastructure in terms of building buildings in the field, uh, we are working very feverishly on that, as well as uh, building two paper data capture centers, one in Jeffersonville, Indiana, and one in Phoenix, Arizona, to capture the data on those paper forms when it comes in. Uh, also going on at kind of a different slant um, is our state-level complete count committees, which are underway with 46 states, including Washington, D.C., and Puerto Rico. In addition to those state-level uh, complete count committees, significant work is also occurring to establish uh, local, either at the tribal, county, city, and community levels. And to date, we have over 1,600 local committees, um, including 55, 54 tribal communities. Um, and then I'd close out with work that's going on right now. Um, over 8,700 active total partners now, um, and we've completed 11,000 partnership events uh, nationwide to date. So we're really um, starting to turn on the lights in those offices and get the word out and drive the energy up with our partners across the board. Wow, that's really interesting that you guys um, have already done so much. And so now it's like the really the end pushed once you actually start counting people and doing the census. Uh, mm -hmm. When exactly does the count itself start? Um, what is like the first location that you guys count? It's so Tukshuk Bay uh, uh, in remote Alaska. We generally start the census in January when it's nice and chilly uh, <laughs> up in Alaska. So we'll um, that's the official kickoff. That's next January. Um, and that really does begin getting everything um really into full action the way that I see it. So we're excited about that. That's where we'll start the census. And then the majority of the country, the rest of them then roll in in March is when folks will start to receive their invitation to respond in the census. Now, the self-response, um, as you said, it's traditionally done with paper and you guys will still be using paper. Mm -hmm. But how has technology changed the nature of how you guys gather information? And I think anyone might be able to speak to this a little bit um, or if you want to grab it, it's really up to you guys. Sure. I'm happy to do that. So technology is actually infused all throughout the census. Um, that's no surprise. That's the world we live in. Uh, but first, we're actually changing the way we build the address list that I was talking about. So instead of walking nearly every street in the nation, we're doing a lot of that walking using geospatial imagery. So in the office, I like to say we're walking the blocks. Um, we will still be on the ground doing what we call infield address listing, which is when you're walking around updating the list. Uh, later this summer, but it will only be um, a portion of the country where we don't have good imagery and are not able to do it in the office. Um, what I think people are most familiar with is the introduction of the internet as a response mode, um, as well as uh, the telephone we'll have out there. And then, of course, we've had paper. The internet will allow folks to respond in what we call non-ID, which is response without having your census ID that came from the Census Bureau and will match you up with your address. And then uh, wrapping up to be more efficient, we're actually using a lot of technology with our field staff, um, not only collecting data on iPhones, uh, but also optimizing their traveling routes when they're going to houses that haven't respond, responded, and as well delivering those case assignments out electronically, where in 2010 that was a heavily paper-based process that involved people getting together uh, to exchange paper and meet every day. So really technology goes through all the different parts of the census. 
Wow. And one of the things you talked about was people responding electronically. Uh, that One of the first things that makes me think about is if someone doesn't have access to the Internet, there might be a barrier there. Mm-hmm. Beth, could you speak a little bit to how we can make sure those people still are aware of the census and are involved and maybe don't feel left out? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, as we know, um, having technology um, added and having an online option for the census is, is a great thing. But for some folks, um, yeah, you're right. It absolutely is a barrier. Um, there are rural communities and some urban areas that don't have broadband access um, or, or there's some households that don't have reliable broadband access. Or for some communities, um, our, our partners at Naleo did uh, message research and uh, found that the Latino community actually prefers to fill out a written form. And so there are some some communities that um, have been historically harder to count, whether it's rural or just, you know, uh, by preference, uh, that that won't be responding um, on online. And um, we are, you know, working with uh, our partners and um, the the state networks and and local uh, trusted messengers at the at the local level, really talking to those community uh, members. And right now, just saying, hey, the census is coming. Uh, we know, you know, it's not always. Top of mind, it happens every ten years. So, hey, it's coming. Um, watch out, and it's important. You need to participate. Why? Why? How are you thinking about kind of your plan of, of your participation? Um, and then, you know, encouraging and providing um, resources for people. Um, we know that they'll receive, you know, a number of different um, mailings from the bureau and uh, and opportunities uh, and, and re- ways to fill it out. If they don't want to fill it out online, they can call. And, and fill it out over the form. So that's an, uh, over the phone. Um, so that is an option. Uh, and so we're really um, making plans to kind of meet people where they are and have those conversations with them. If I could just jump in, I think Congress, too, has recognized that this is um, a necessary issue to address. I mean, by virtue of the fact they've actually put report language in last year's funding bill for the Census Bureau encouraging the bureau directing the bureau quite honestly to um to spend more funding on on partnership program communication strategies opening up question assistance centers so people can get the assistance they need whether they choose to respond via the internet or via paper yeah wow very cool uh we are up against our second break we will continue our discussion after this word from our sponsors you're listening to fed talk on federal news radio 1500 a.m Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. One team working all three branches. Judicial, legislative, executive. Judicial. SB&R employment attorneys offer specialized legal representation for federal managers. Legislative. Lobbyists in government and public affairs advocating for corporate clients. Executive. Produces two free weekly newsletters, Fed Manager and Fed Agent. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth is your one destination for all three branches of government. Online at shawbransford.com. SB&R. Client-focused. Results-driven. Welcome back. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 AM. I am here with Deb Stampowski of the U.S. Census Bureau, Mary Jo Huxema from the Population Association of America, and Beth Lank, your Census Counts Campaign Director at the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. We were just talking a little bit about the technology changes um, from previous years to this year. And uh, Mary Jo just stepped in to talk a little bit about the funding. And so what I wanted to ask you, Mary Jo, was particularly dealing with funding, how is is the census usually funded and how is that kind of compared to this census? And, you know, are we on track? 
Well, so the Census Bureau funding um, is unlike the funding the funding cycle for other federal agencies. It ramps up over the course of the decade, and then it ramps back down um, as we, we close out the census and, and start preparing for the next one because it is a decade-long process. But it doesn't require building from a baseline and investing billions and billions of dollars every year. We do ramp up and ramp back down, and that historically does not change regardless of how the census is designed, um, the technology, the outreach campaign, whatever. Whatever uh, those factors are, it's a ramp up and ramp back down process. Um, one would say that in the course of this decade, ramping up to 2020, that Congress and the administration didn't necessarily provide the Bureau with the resources it needed um, at key points of the of the decennial cycle planning process. Um, at times when we could have used more funding to invest in more field tests and um, and testing more enumeration strategies, the funding wasn't there. So we are a little concerned that some of this great technology that the Census Bureau has developed hasn't been tested as thoroughly as one would like. Um, and that was largely due to a, to lack of funding. Um, that being said, we are now, you know, the ramp up to the to the 2020 census. Congress, you know, likes a crisis, I like to say. And they have a, awakened to the fact that if we are going to have a successful 2020 census, the nation's first digital census, this agency needs significant infusion of funds. And so um, the Bureau and the, or I should say the administration and Congress have stepped forward. Um, we, we stakeholders certainly were very pleased with the amount of funding that the Bureau received for fiscal year 2019, the, the year that we're in right now, um, received a little bit over $4 billion. And that was a, a pretty big increase over what the administration had originally requested. Um, but as stakeholders, we feel very strongly that the Bureau is going to need another um, $4 billion increase um, heading into 2020. And that's just in keeping with historical trends. Um, census year funding for the decennial census is at least twice the funding level of the prior fiscal year. So um, we hope Congress will hear our cry as advocates um, to provide the Bureau with the funding it needs, which we believe is um, seven, I'm sorry, $8.4 billion, 7.5 of that going exclusively towards support for the 2020 census. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about funding for the census, um, it's easy, you know, you noted how there's a certain amount going specifically for the 2020 decennial census, but the Census Bureau also does many other things. Mm -hmm. So um, I think a mistake that I've heard before is, oh, they have enough money uh, for they, the Bureau has enough money, it'll be fine, kind of not acknowledging that they also have things like the American Community Survey and other surveys that they do throughout the year that are also very important um, and are need to be funded as well. So it is a much more holistic effort than just the 2020 census. Exactly. But on the topic of uh, funding, I know one of the things Congress has been focusing on recently is funding for cybersecurity, because with the increased use of the Internet, there is a greater concern about cybersecurity. And Deb, I was wondering if you could speak to some of the efforts that the Census Bureau has made to ensure that the people's data is secure. Absolutely. Happy to do that. Uh, our, the Census Bureau's program is uh, evolving our cybersecurity, leveraging the best practices and resources, knowledge inside and outside the federal government to protect against cyber attacks. We're working closely with cybersecurity experts at Department of Homeland Security and other agencies to improve our security posture. And in fact, DHS has publicly stated that in 2020, it will focus its cybersecurity expertise in two areas, uh, the 2020 elections and the U.S. Census. Um, Turning uh, to a little bit different part of security, confidentiality is also core uh, to our values at the Census Bureau. And we have strict policies and procedures in place to ensure we never uh, disclose personally identifiable information. We also have confidence in our IT systems because we test them against federal government cybersecurity standards prior to giving them that authority to operate and placing them into production. And then we don't quit once the system is in that production mode either. We'll continue be continually be monitoring and testing cybersecurity capabilities during the entire time each system is operational so that we can detect any newly identified vulnerabilities that come up during production. 
I think that confidentiality point that you just hit on is really important because I know um, particularly for uh, immigrant communities, there can be a lot of anxiety around the census. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that has gotten a lot of attention is the citizenship question Mm -hmm. because there is there is some anxiety around it for a lot of people. And well, overall, I think we can agree that this is going to be determined by the courts and uh, through a process much greater than anyone in this room. But Beth, I was hoping you could speak to some of the constitutional fears and the the concerns surrounding the involvement of this question um, just a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, just to kind of anchor it in the, the start of this conversation, um, which was in resources and funding, um, what uh, Mary Jo was talking about, that, that stakeholder um, number, that $8.4 billion, that um, number is, is an increase from what the administration requested. And what that includes is requests to expand the partnership part program and um, provide those uh, questionnaire assistance centers so that people can uh, ask questions and get the resources that they need. And then also have a contingency plan um, to deal with some of the uh, you know additional passes that may need to be made because people will feel uncomfortable responding to the census due to um, the citizenship question. And we don't know whether or not it will be included. Um, it's before the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court will hear the case on April um, 23rd. Uh, and uh, But we do know for many communities, the damage has already been done. Um, there's been, there's a lot of fear uh, that uh, many communities right now already have um, in, in their communities and a lot of distrust in government um, that exist that we knew was going to be a challenge going into this 2020 census. Um, and that has been exacerbated by the addition of the um, citizenship question, which, uh, which was which was added um, to to great opposition from the larger community. Um, the the leadership conference um, and and partners uh, actually uh, mobilized over two hundred fifty thousand people who submitted comments um, opposing the question. Um, and so uh, while that and and also we had over one hundred seventy five groups that submitted amicus briefs to the Supreme Court um, on Monday um, in opposition to the question. So there's there's been a, a really decisive response um, from the larger community in opposition to the question. Um, and and we do know that there's a lot of work to do um, in terms of uh, allaying and, and really addressing people's fears. To answer your question um, about, you know, what needs to be done to, to um, to speak to those communities and um, and do some of that outreach. Specifically, um, right now, it's it's about um, education. So it's about education about what's why is the census important to you and to to your community. Um, it's about those resources. It's about that political representation. Um, but also, it's education about the fact that census data is some of the most protected data of any type of data in the government. So um, Title Thirteen in the U.S. Code protects your um, your information that's submitted to the Census Bureau. Um, and, uh, and and it is um, protected and the, the Census Bureau has um, cybersecurity processes in place that they're working on to ensure that your data stays secure throughout the entire life cycle of the census. Um, so so those are those are the facts and there's an added value to you to participate. Um, we know and we're working you know with organizers and immigrant rights communities on the ground to really meet communities where they are um, and to, to hear their concerns and, and answer and really have a conversation. Um, it's also, you know, it's a requirement to fill out the census. Um, it, it, it's, you know, it, it is a, uh, it, it's a requirement as outlined in the Constitution. Um, and so we really want to empower communities um, and and help them, uh, you know, feel feel like that is a safe choice for them, for their families and their communities. Um, and so that's that's a lot of work that's going to have to happen over the next year. Uh, Mary Jo spoke about some of the federal funding that's happening, um, some of that work that the groups are doing um, at the state and local level. Some of that's happening um, based off of um, state funding that's coming from some of those complete 
count committees that Deb mentioned earlier. Um, so uh, we were excited to see that um, the state of Georgia just um, uh, designated $1.5 million for their complete count committee in their state. Uh, we know uh, then there are states like California that has over $90 million um, that they've uh, designated um, to um, for their outreach. Um, and uh, for and obviously they have, you know, the largest in size hard to count community um, in, in California. Um, so for their outreach, uh, we know that will be huge. Um, but that uh, the, that state funding goes directly um, to uh, resourcing those local groups and communities um, and state um, state tables to do that outreach that's going to be necessary to reach those hard to count community groups. Um, so things like in Minnesota, um, some of our uh, partners are uh, thinking about how do we um, use powwow season that's going to be happening in indigenous communities um, over the summer to do education events um, about the census. Um, in Alabama on Tuesday, they had a thousand kids at their state capitol talking about um, the importance of the census and why it's critical to participate. Um, so many more of these things will be happening, and um, both at the, the federal level, but also at the state level. For some of those states that haven't yet um, designated some funding, um, that that will be really necessary for that outreach. And Deb, um, as far as the the citizenship question goes, one of the things that we hit on was because this is going to be dealt with by the Supreme Court, we're really not going to have an answer about whether or not it's put on until. June, perhaps. So how has the Census Bureau prepared for that? So the Census Bureau will conduct a complete and accurate count for 2020, regardless of how the Supreme Court rules on the issue of whether to reinstate the citizenship question. Uh, we expect, uh, Beth mentioned the April 23rd hearing, and we expect that the Supreme Court will issue a decision before the end of June. Uh, we have a July 1 deadline. We've designed the online and print questionnaires, both with and without the citizenship question, and we will be ready regardless of how the court rules. Well, it's great to know that um, a lot of people are involved and that the Bureau is prepared. We are going to stop here uh, for a word from our sponsors. When we return, we'll wrap up our discussion about the 2020 census, talking about what it means and how everyone in the country can get involved to make sure we have a complete and accurate count. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 AM. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 AM. We are entering our last segment of the show on one of my favorite topics, the 2020 census. And what I really wanted to get into in these last 15 minutes is how the public can make sure that they are counted. And um, I think one of the first elements that I think is important to discuss is the language barrier that is going to exist for many Americans and how uh, both the Census Bureau and how independent groups are working to combat that and um, get as many people have an accessible census as possible. So if Beth, would you like to start? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, we... Uh we know, um, you know, for many communities, um, you know, language will be a barrier. Um, we've uh, been uh, working with our partners to ensure that uh, some out outreach materials um, are and educational materials are available in a number of different languages, uh, particularly for the Asian Pacific um, Islander, uh, Asian American and Pacific Islander communities um, that have uh, such a broad range of uh, languages um, that are spoken in their communities. Uh, we know that there will be some um, 
that won't be in the prescribed set of 13 languages that will be available um, from the from the bureau. And so, uh, working with uh, our partners at um, Asian Americans Advancing Justice and others who are uh, developing some resources to to reach those uh, reach those groups where they are. I also can't overstate the importance of um, ethnic media in this um, role as well. Um, many um, ethnic media um, outlets are usually smaller outlets that um, really uh, are key trusted messengers in their communities and um, meet a, uh, and reach a wide variety of languages. And so really thinking about how are we um, speaking to people where they are and um, using um, and, and engaging um, ethnic media um, in, in some of that outreach. And Deb, how has the Census Bureau tried to make sure everyone has that accessibility? So we have developed a robust language services program that we believe will enable limited English-speaking individuals to respond easily to the census. Beth talked about 13 languages. I, I usually say 12 non-English languages and um, then include English in that, where we'll be offering that for our internet self-response as well as our census questionnaire assistance lines. But in addition to that, um, we do have the bilingual mailing that some of the country will receive, which is English and Spanish. Um, as well, we're going to have 59 non-English language guides in video and print format, so expanding further on that, as well as language glossaries and language identification cards. Those 59 languages cover 98% of the households in the country that do not speak English well. Um, and those guides, uh, as in addition to those languages, will also cover American Sign Language, Braille, and then large print. So I believe we have a robust uh, language program in place to be complemented, again, by hiring locally with folks within the community who also carry some of those uh, smaller language needs and capabilities to help folks respond with someone they're comfortable and can communicate with effectively. Yeah, I'm going to give a little plug for a reason why everyone should work for the census at some point in their life. I was telling Deb this story earlier. My grandmother actually immigrated to the United States, and one of the first things she did was sign up to be a census lister because for her, knowing that, one, she could break that linguistic barrier, she could speak both Spanish and English, but also just it's you become more aware of your community, and you become a really strong part of your community, and you, you see people that you might not normally get a chance to knock on their door ever. So I think that local support really is a huge part of what makes the census possible. Mm -hmm. And having a familiar face knock on your door is always a little bit helpful for increasing engagement. But there are also some other populations that might be a little bit harder to count, um, largely because they aren't aware of the best way to count. And that tends to be college students. Mm -hmm. So I think there's this big kind of question of, where do they file? And so um, if Deb can speak a little bit more to that and how college students can ensure that they're counted too. Happy to. Having a college student of my own, I shared with Natalia, we had this conversation at my house when my daughter asked where she'd be counted in the census. So college students uh, count where they live and sleep most of the time. And I like that live and sleep most of the time, I think is easy for folks to remember. So for students who are away from their parents' home, uh, we will count them at their on or off campus housing at school. So if your child lives in a dormitory, we work uh, with university administrators and points of contact uh, to conduct the census in those dorms. We call That's part of our group quarters operation. But uh, should your son or daughter live off campus in housing in an apartment, they're actually a regular housing unit, so they'll get the census there. And that's really important for uh, university funding, I think, because uh, if universities really want that accurate count of how many students are living in their area mm -hmm. so they can get accurate funding. Uh, Mary Jo, can you speak to a little bit how universities use that? Well, I mean, the, the the funding is is used again to benefit the, the 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 larger community surrounding the university, of course. So they have a vested interest; those being mayors, mm -hmm. county commissioners, et cetera, that have universities in their in their home districts um, to ensure that those students are counted. And and so this issue has come up at several conferences, at which I've heard local officials express concern about whether or not mm -hmm. they'll get their college students counted where they live and sleep yeah. most of the time. It's funny in wearing my PAA hat, representing population 
education scientists, our members are largely based at universities. And so our members are really committed to um, engaging in outreach to ensure that their students understand where they should be counted. Um, we care about the, the quality of the data, regardless of how it benefits the community. And so we want to ensure that college students understand the importance of their participation and where they should be counted. Yeah, absolutely. So I think for everyone, um, I'm sure there's a lot of people, we talked a little bit already about how the census is conducted, but for the individual person living in their house, so the first thing they can expect is that self-response. Um, how exactly is that delivered? It's via the internet. Is that an email? How do people know that initial the census is coming, I need to respond. What is the first thing people should expect? They will actually receive most of the country uh, mailing in their mailbox. So even with an online census, you still get a paper invitation in the mail to respond. Um, some folks will actually get a form in that first mailing, though, as we've talked about, with the three modes. So um, that being said, I think the other reason people will know to respond is the active work of our communications campaigns, our partners, uh, local advocates, and the whole group there who are going to make people aware that, you know, next March is when the majority of the country is going to be invited to respond and get that awareness out there. And Beth, I know the Census Counts Group has done some work to make sure people are aware ahead of time of the census is coming. And um, I noticed on your website you guys have that pledge, which I thought was really cool. I have signed the pledge that Thank I will you. be counted in the census. Um, and so what very specifically are some of the outreach you guys have done to make sure people know this is coming. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so um, that's right. At um, censuscounts.org, we've got a lot of resources about the importance of the census and um, resources and links to all the partners that we work with uh, about the census and uh, how you can engage, uh, but also how you can mobilize your community. Um, so if you're a, um, a mayor or a county official or you are a state legislator or you're just a, um, a, you're a student body president at your high school or at your college um, and you want to engage um, your community, um, feel free to come to censuscounts.org and, and we can help get you started. Um, but you're right, on April 1, uh, we, uh, which also coincided, coincided with the census's um, census day, um, we had a census day of action. Um, and so across the country, groups uh, organized over 50 events uh, and uh, participated in Twitter town hall or Twitter chats and Twitter storms, um, really using it as an opportunity to mobilize and, and speak to their communities uh, about the importance of the census. And you're, I thank you so much for, for saying um, that you pledged to take the census. You were one of 10,000 people that said, hey, I pledge to and commit to participate in the census in 2020. Um, and, uh, and hopefully um, also we'll be asking those folks to, can you educate three people in your community about the census um, and, and really uh, do some of that uh, relational organizing work to, to talk about, okay, this is why the census is important to me and why I'm pledged, and this is why you should participate as well. Um, because we know, you know that the census will only work if everyone shows up, and so uh, we're really committed um, to, to doing that work and empowering folks to, to plan um, for, uh, for, for 2020 because it's coming pretty quickly. It is definitely coming pretty quickly. And one of the things that um, I was watching the live stream of the Census Bureau doing their April 1st event as well, and I read a really interesting statistic that they were discussing about how 99% of hard-to-count areas are within five miles of a public library. And so public libraries have played a really critical role in uh, getting the count out and making sure everyone is involved. Deb, can you speak a little bit to that partnership and how you guys have worked with public libraries? Yeah, I think that was fantastic. That was uh, wonderful of her to say at the event. And I think important to know when you're going to your public library to respond, again, you can use their internet connection to respond. But if you're at the library and you find you don't have your ID letter from the Census Bureau on you, you can still respond on the internet by going on and using our non-ID function. So if you're a frequenter to the library, you're going to go to the library to respond. You can do that with or without your census mailing materials that we've sent to you using that non-ID option. 
That's great. And okay, so Beth talked a little bit about uh, the website. Can you give us one more time how we can reach you? And then I think we should just go down the line. And if anyone has any more questions for our guests, let them know how they can reach out to you guys or your organization. Absolutely. Um, so yes, uh, folks can uh, feel free to reach the Census Counts campaign at censuscounts.org. Um, they can also find us on Twitter at, at censuscounts, um, or uh, uh, and as well as um, on on Instagram. Um, you can um, find me um, at, at Beth Notflow on Twitter, um, and also reach me at um, at uh, censuscounts.org as well. Great. Great. And um, if you could go to thecensusproject.org, you'll find, a, I think, a tremendous website there with a lot of resources, links to current um, articles. We do a monthly update. We maintain a blog, provide information about the funding issues that Congress is grappling with. So there's, there's lots of information there for you and a way to contact me through that website as well. Great. I'd love to encourage everybody to visit 2020census.gov, and specifically if you're willing to come and work for us uh, on that website, 2020census.gov backslash jobs, you can apply there, but you can also follow the Census Bureau on Twitter and Facebook at U.S. Census Bureau, and we're also on Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Amazing. Well, the 2020 census officially starts in January, so we will be looking forward to that. But that is all the time we have for today's show. Deb, Mary Jo, Beth, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been an absolute pleasure. And thank all of you at home for joining us as well. Fed Talk is brought to you by the federal employment law firm Shaw, Bransford & Roth. Have a great weekend.